Hi, everybody. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. along with my brother, Rick. It's great to be with you. In fact, the banner over our website says, Examining Current Events in the Light of God's Prophetic Word. And that's what we are doing. My brother and I are carrying on the ministry of my father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, as for over 20 years, he carried on the ministry of helping the body of Christ to understand where they are as far as the end times are concerned. Well, Rick, it's great to have you with us today. Again, you and I are together and doing the interviews. And what do we have in store for our program today? Well, Jimmy, it certainly is a privilege to be able to follow in Dad's footsteps. We know uh, both of us for so many years helped him put together this same program, and now we're carrying on out for him. We do have online our normal contingent of broadcast partners. Some of the issues and topics we'll be discussing today is the recently completed Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. We will be talking about that with several of our broadcast partners. We'll also talk about the events taking place in Afghanistan and in the Middle East and Iran and how those uh, events are taking shape with our broadcast partners. So it should be a very interesting day. I'm excited about today's program. Let's get started. Well, thank you, Jimmy. And today we have again with us our normal weekly guest, Ken Timmerman. He's our expert on geopolitical affairs, and he is with us to discuss uh, the events going on in the world right now. Ken, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Ken, we're going to start off here. We're basically on the one-year anniversary of the Abrahamic Accords that were done with uh, previous president, President Donald Trump. Can you talk about where we are in that situation right now? Well, it's uh, kind of interesting to see that the one country that seems to put the least stock in the Abraham Accords is the very country that helped negotiate them, the United States. And that is, again, under the ideology of the Biden administration that anything done by President Trump is bad, and therefore should not be pursued. This one-year anniversary was not marked by meetings at the White House or even meetings at the State Department. It was not marked by the Secretary of State uh, meeting his counterparts uh, in Jerusalem or in other capitals uh, in Bahrain or Morocco or the UAE or even Sudan. It was marked by a tiny little meeting in the U.N. in New York among U.N. ambassadors, which is really quite astonishing when you think of the, how groundbreaking these peace treaties were. These were peace treaties and economic treaties between Israel and countries that had been its enemies since 1947. I mean, absolutely groundbreaking on the part of the Trump administration and essentially defused 50, over 50 years of hostility uh, between the Sunni Muslim bloc in the Middle East and the Jewish state of Israel. I mean, an extraordinary accomplishment. And it's just being swept aside. And you even had uh, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. saying, well, um, we don't really want to use the term Abraham Accords because that's not, a, you know, that's not necessary. But we'll say those recent agreements that were signed. So again, this is part of the hysteria on the part of the organized left in this country to deny all of the achievements of President Trump and, wherever possible, to throw Israel and Israel's new allies under the bus. Going all the way back to modern history, we are looking at uh, these accords and these agreements that uh, the United States has worked out in the Middle East. 
And, and, you know, really within the last 20 years, the Abraham Accords is the greatest achievement that has been made. So if I was looking at that situation, how much of that do you think you could chalk up to maybe the animosity of the current administration against the Trump administration? And how much of it is just their general outlook on the situation in the Middle East and Israel's place in the Middle East? Well, that's actually a very good question, and it's probably about 50-50 in that case. But although there's, a, there's enough animosity towards the Trump administration to, to uh, fulfill that uh, requirement all alone, uh, but their, their worldview uh, is anti-Israel, as you mentioned. Their worldview is to favor regimes and states that are hostile to Israel and that even are hostile to the United States, hence the support for the Taliban we're seeing today, hence also this uh, extraordinary um, uh, rush to either conclude a new nuclear agreement with Iran or at the very least wink and nod at Iran's nuclear achievements and do nothing about them. You know, a second piece of this uh, we saw just this past week, uh, again, an extraordinary event. I've seen nothing on this in the U.S. uh, media, in the corporate media at least, Greece, a NATO ally, is now sending Patriot uh, missiles. These are missiles used to shoot down uh, incoming missiles or rockets to Saudi Arabia. Why? Because the United States, under the Biden regime in April, pulled out Patriot missile batteries that we had had there since the first Gulf War in 1990, 1991. We had had those missile batteries stationed in Saudi Arabia to help defend the kingdom, and in particular, its gigantic oil facilities that have been hit by Iranian-backed militias from Yemen, right? They have been targeted uh, with missile strikes and drone strikes over the past two to three years by these Iranian-backed Houthi militias in Yemen. So the United States does what? We pull out that protection. We pull the rug out from, the, from under an ally in the Middle East. And thank goodness for Greece stepping up to the plate and sending their NATO allotment of Patriot anti-missiles to Saudi Arabia. Absolutely amazing. I mean, I've never seen anything quite like it, where Greece becomes a better ally for a U.S. ally in the Middle East than the United States itself. Well, as we continue to move on around the world and we move out of the Middle East and go to China, and all indications and reports are out now that they are overseeing a massive buildup in their nuclear arsenal. And obviously, that should be very concerning to us. What can you tell us about that situation? This is a huge, huge development. It's been going on for some time, and and those of us who watch China have been aware of it. We've been tracking this. But the, the Chinese have long been dismissed by arms control experts and the foreign policy community as just being a, a minor player in terms of their nuclear weapons arsenal for years the official count has been something like 350 warheads, and it's really only there as kind of a last-minute deterrent should something really, really horrible happen, like a U.S. nuclear strike. It's there to deter a U.S. or Russian nuclear strike, nuclear weapon strike. But in the past five to six years, they have been spending hundreds of billions of dollars to modernize that nuclear arsenal and to dramatically expand it. Um, you had a presentation just earlier this week by the uh, vice chairman of the Ch- Joint Chiefs of Staff in the United States at the Brookings Institution in, in Washington, where he said, well, now is 
you know, out there in public open source reports, uh, yes, the Chinese are building 300 nuclear missile silos in western China in Xinjiang, which is where the Uyghurs live, by the way. And these silos can each fit a new DF-41 ICBM missile capable of hitting the United States and also capable of carrying 10 warheads. That's 3,000 new warheads should the Chinese actually build them. That basically increases tenfold their nuclear weapons arsenal. I mean, just something absolutely amazing and double, by the way, what the U.S. or Russia are allowed to have under the follow-on START agreement from 2009-2010. I mean, this is an amazing development. And in addition to that, and you know, it doesn't stop there. In addition, the Chinese are developing this road and rail uh, mobile nuclear launch system where they put the uh, mobile launchers on trucks and then put them on rails uh, in some places underground all across the country. And they're building six new nuclear weapons submarines. They can also carry uh, MIRV missiles on them. So we are just seeing an extraordinary leap forward in China's nuclear weapons capability. And you've just got to ask the question, why? Why are they spending all this money? Why do they now want to have more warheads deployed? Well, a situation that we want to keep an eye on and we don't want to take for granted our past situation and realize that, you know, the dynamics are changing in the world. Well, moving on to our final question here, and I want to talk about a comment that came out from the Iranian Armed Forces spokesman in which he talks about or he confirms the fact that the United States is the Iranian Republic's top enemy while also committing to the destruction of the state of Israel. What can you tell us about this? Well, this is the kind of statement that the Iranians like to make at the same time as people in the White House in this country, the Secretary of State and others are saying, oh, well, Iran is not a threat. We're not worried about Iran. We want to sign a new nuclear agreement with the Iranian regime. Uh, the, the, this, <laughs> the, the quote here is really, it's almost humorous because they make it all the time. They call Israel the dog guarding America while the United States uh, is the number one enemy of the Iranian people. Well, the Iranian people know that's not true, for starters. But this is the rhetoric of this regime. And by the way, it's what they thrive on. Uh, it began 42 years ago when they took office, when they seized power in a violent revolution, and it continues to this day. It's how they keep the faithful, if you wish, supporting the regime. We don't know how large that number of faithful is, maybe 10%, maybe 15% of the population. Nobody knows for sure. But I talk to a lot of Iranian young people, and I can, from what I'm hearing from them, there's an awful lot of cynicism, not just open dissent, but also just general cynicism of the younger generation towards their elders for their corruption and for their incompetence. So this kind of rhetoric is, is there just to keep the faithful in line. Uh, it does not signal, in my opinion, a renewed Iranian aggression towards the U.S. or Israel. It's just this same aggression that they've had for 42 years. Well, thank you very much, Ken. There's so much to be alarmed and aware of. Of course, we, we trust in a sovereign God, and we know that that situation is under control, but we definitely do uh, want to stay informed about these geopolitical events that are taking uh, place around the world, and we thank you for doing that, Ken, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. Amen to that, Rick, and again, thanks for having me on. God bless we're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan will be going to the Middle East to talk to David about the holiday of Yom Kippur and decisions that Israel is making right now concerning Iran. 
right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. You know, the student of Bible prophecy always has to keep Israel in mind, God's plan for the Jewish people, and that he's not finished with the Jews yet. We go to David Dolan and Rick as they're talking about what's taking place in Israel right now. Thank you, Jimmy. And here we are back now with our regularly scheduled Middle East news update with our good friend Dave Dolan is with us today. How are you doing? I'm good, Rick. And you? Doing well. Jumping right into it, in Israel, the recently completed holiday of Yom Kippur took place. And let me just read something to you because I'd like for you to comment on this both from a the importance of Yom Kippur, but this uh, the article that I was reading says, for many it is a day of fasting and prayer. For others, it's a unique chance to enjoy empty roads. And I know you spent many a Yom Kippur holiday in Israel, so if you could, tell us about the importance of Yom Kippur, but also tell us what it's like to be in Israel on that holiday. Well, as you suggested, Rick, it's a, a mix, really, uh, for observant Jews, um, it's, of course, a very holy day, the holiest day of the year, very somber day. The ten days of awe leading up to it are times of extra reflection and review of the last year. What did I do? What didn't I do? You know, did I follow God's laws? This sort of thing. The synagogues are packed. Many, uh, especially observant men will be in the synagogue almost the entire 24, 25 hours of Yom Kippur. As you said, they fast not only from food but from water, at least many do. 
And if you have a medical condition or elderly or something, you're not expected to fast, but otherwise you are. But for the children of Israel, especially from secular families, it's their favorite holiday for another reason. As you suggest, the roads are empty. All the restaurants are closed, all the movie theaters and any, you know, museums and schools and shops, everything shuts down, including public transport. So there's no buses, there's no trains. And it means that there's very few, if any, cars on most of the roads. So the kids get out there with their skateboards and their bicycles. And it's a contrast, but overall, of course, it's a religious holiday and one that is taken very seriously. And in fact, a lot of Jews that don't normally go to synagogue are not that observant, do fast on Yom Kippur. It's just so deep in the Jewish tradition that many people will do it, even though they don't have the same religious motivations. They just do it to be part of the country, really. Well, continuing on the theme of Yom Kippur, in the early 70s, there's a war called the Yom Kippur War. And during that war, the Arab neighbors that surround Israel took advantage of that time where they shut the country down and surprised Israel with an attack. So Israel being cognizant of what happened in the, uh, in, in the Yom Kippur War, what kind of security precautions do they take at this time to, be, to not be caught unaware again? Well, that was a very traumatic uh, surprise attack on Yom Kippur. They had a few hours' notice, is all, and, uh, you know, they had to call up all the soldiers, most of whom were fasting and praying, and they had to stop all of that and rush off to their posts. So, and, of course, the, uh, the war that Israel nearly lost, uh, and it was only that the United States intervened after the Soviet Union started to load troops onto transport planes to back Egypt and Syria, their allies at the time, that that the U.S. then stepped in, and it um, ended the war, but it lasted for several weeks. But yes, ever since then, Rick, uh, the security rules were changed. There's always units that are on duty that aren't allowed to fast or go back to their homes, whereas most of the soldiers did that before 73. Now there's units and, uh, you know, other provisions there. They keep Air Force pilots available. And, um, of course, the territories are sealed off, not just the Gaza Strip that's usually sealed off, but Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, um, is closed. But we did have this week an uptick in incidents, um, not just on Yom Kippur, but before and after. As you suggested, there was rioting on Thursday night in Jericho, um, a lot of trouble around Jenin, north of Jerusalem, where two of the six jailbreak uh, Palestinians that uh, broke out of the high-security Gilboa prison are believed to be hiding in that area, and uh, there's all sorts of operations. There was an armed uh, attack on a group of Israeli soldiers uh, also during the week in another location and some other things. So nothing major, no countries attacking, but they're always cognizant of that, and especially, of course, from Gaza or Lebanon, where we have rockets aimed at Israel. But, of course, we also had a meeting early this week between Prime Minister Bennett, Naftali Bennett, and Abdel Sisi, the Egyptian president that, uh, you know, was over 
throne briefly and then back in power and uh he's keeping the peace treaty going it was the anniversary of the signing of the israel plo treaty in 1993 september 13th that they met uh down in the sinai peninsula and the meeting went well and we're at peace with egypt still and with jordan still shaky at times but that's still holding and uh we're just watching iran now of course and its proxies they're the ones stirring up the trouble we also have the one-year anniversary of the Abraham Accords. Uh, how is that working in Israel, and how is that being, is it being celebrated? How is it being remembered? Yes, September is a month of uh, these treaties. Going back to 1979, the Egyptian-Israeli uh, treaty was signed in September, and uh, as you said last year, uh, on Friday of this week, was the anniversary of the first accord between Israel and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, uh, it's being celebrated, and they welcomed in Jerusalem a statement this week by the State Department in Washington uh, pledging full support for those Trump uh, administration treaties. Um, and, of course, we know that Joe Biden has turned around almost everything that President Trump did, apart from the Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, but they are supporting, uh, the spokesman said very strongly, the continuation of these treaties. And the fact that four countries in the end uh, signed on was uh, remarkable. It had been over 20 years since the uh, Egyptian-Jordanian treaty, nearly 30 years actually, was signed, and the treaty with the PLO. So um, very welcome, and uh, and the business ties are growing the mayor of Jerusalem was just in the UAE signing some agreements and some business deals going on. Tourism is taking place, especially between the Gulf states, not with Sudan uh, so much, but with Morocco. There's now direct flights again with Morocco uh, that were broke bringing benefits to the peoples of all those countries involved, and uh, the Israelis are very glad for it. Final question, David, and we look at it. I've seen... Former Prime Minister Netanyahu came out in the news this week and talked a little bit uh, that he feels like the current administration or the current leadership there in Israel, of course, headed by Prime Minister Bennett, are racing towards a dangerous deal with Iran. Can you talk about that situation a little bit? Well, he did mention that, but the details of it are a little sketchy. We have really... In the new Israeli government, as we know, we have eight political parties stretching from the left to the right, one Arab party, and uh, they have these parties' different policies regarding Iran. So which party's, <laughs> you know, uh, thoughts will prevail is anybody's guess. But Naftali Bennett's party is a right-wing religious party, and they are very strongly opposed to Iran's nuclear program, very strongly opposed to the U.S. negotiating again to resume the international nuclear agreement with Iran. But others in the government, Lapid and the Labor Party and the Merits, have a different position. So we'll just have to see. I think Bennett will prevail uh, we have reports this week that Iran may be only 8 to 12 weeks away from having uh, full capacity to build nuclear weapons. This is an imminent threat that Israel's facing, and uh, I'm dubious about Netanyahu's comments on that. I think it's maybe just some sour grapes.
that could be the case. But if you look at this coalition, and this coalition is a very diverse coalition, if you want to put it like that, how long can this be held together by the current Prime Minister Bennett? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Um, it's uh, quite remarkable that they would get together in the first place, and people are still in awe over it. By the way, Bennett was named in Time Magazine's 100 Most Important uh, People list uh, this week, so he's uh, getting some recognition. But he's a skilled politician, and Yair Lapid is to rotate with him according to the agreement and become prime minister in two years, so he wants to see it uh, stay in place. So with those two parties, that's two-thirds of the makeup of the new government, their uh, Knesset members. So they may just hold it together, but uh, there's a lot of issues, not just Iran, that could pull it apart. Well, David, thank you so much. It's it's very confusing, and it's it's also very interesting and very important for our listeners to be aware of. So thank you for informing our listeners, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. Glad to do it, Rick. God bless. Great insight from David Dolan, a journalist in the Mideast for over 35 years. We're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, Winky Medad will join him in Israel, in the center part of Israel, in Shiloh, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and it's good to be with you. You know, for so many years, we have been going to the heart of Israel, or the center part of Israel, to Shiloh, to talk to our good friend, Winky Madad. Hak Sameach, Winky. Hak Sameach, thank you very much for calling. Uh, you know, after all these years, uh, a question that comes in from time to time is how, I mean, your official name is Yisrael Madad, but how did you get the nickname Winky? Well, my family name, that of my father, was Winkleman. It's a European name. For those who maybe know Dutch, Winkel is a corner, or actually a grocer, I guess by hmm. transference. Usually the grocer was on the corner, right? Mm -hmm. And for those who don't know, it was only about 250 years ago that Jews in Europe were asked to begin to take surnames. Mm. Up until then, we were basically either known by profession or son of father, you know, you know, like John's son was the son of John, you know, something like that. Right. But I don't know exactly why specifically that name uh, was was handed down. I had a copy of a 1890s passport, I think, of my grandfather. It was listed as Winkleman in an area that's now in the western Ukraine. 
And my father was known as Winky as growing up. And I became Winky Jr. for a while. And then I became Winky in my own right. Just as I'm Jimmy Jr. And now we finally know Winky, where Winky came from. So calling you today and uh, just after 25 hours of the holiest day of the year for the Jewish people. For those that don't know, can you explain to us what the 25 hours and after were about? Well, we have a 10-day period, usually in the fall, usually somewhere in September. As we all know, the Hebrew calendar, of course, does not fall exactly in line with the lunar calendar of uh, Gregorian. And it starts off with Rosh Hashanah, the, the new year, which is actually the holiday of blowing of the shofar. But we have turned it into a 10-day penitential season, and the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Tishrei is a full 25-hour fast, in which we spend, those, of course, who are much more observant, okay, a lot of time in the synagogue. The, the prayers are longer. There's a lot more added in terms of, I guess it's similar to some sort of form of confession, which is repeated, in which sins are enumerated and forgiveness is asked. And there is a custom also to dress in white, as if we accept upon ourselves a possible position of being in shrouds. Mm. Very symbolic, of course. That's, of course, the orthodox more than anybody else. And now that we've come out of it, besides being just a little bit hungry, (laughs) uh, we, we have to start to get prepared for the next big holiday, which we call in Hebrew Sukkot, or the holiday of the booths, uh, maybe is a good translation, when we also wave about the palm frond and the citron fruit, which we call the etrog. So actually, the whole month of Tishrei, the Hebrew month of Tishrei, starting with Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, is a lot of eating, a lot of fasting, and a lot of praying, but also a lot of joy. Yeah. I like that. Uh, Food, fellowship, and fun, uh, really, as far as uh, everything that you're doing during this time. Well, for those uh, that are listening, and uh, maybe this is the first time, I know that for most Christians that listen, understand that the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, listed in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, Leviticus, chapter 23. First of all, two questions. One, how much of Israel now participates in Yom Kippur? Well, uh, for those who haven't been here during Yom Kippur, in a certain sense, a lot of the country simply shuts down. All our radio and television services are off. Mm. Airspace is closed down. There's no public transportation. And for those who've been here, there are bicycles all on the highways, which can be dangerous at times, but that's what it is. I don't know the figures. Jimmy, but uh, I could say it's growing year by year. The people who are assuming the obligations of fasting and visiting the synagogue, even if it's for the beginning prayer, mm-hmm. so that the, the Kol Nidre prayer, which is very mournful tune, is very stirring. And so many people come into the synagogue for the beginning and for the end when the shofar is blown. And, uh, and it's like the height, you know, where people get very almost ecstatic in, in hoping for uh, forgiveness and, and, and a good year. As for the fasting, I'm not going to say many people, but uh, I'm, say, I'm saying the area of about maybe 40 to 50% now 
are assuming uh, the fast, even if they go to the beach, maybe. But there are certain things that people pick and choose. You know, there are a lot more Christians today taking on this festivals, the festivals that are, were provided in the Bible to the Jewish people. Do you see a benefit for Christians to be involved in something like the, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur or any of the other festivals? Well, if you ask me to put on my theological hat now, rather than political and sociological, let's all remember that Jesus grew up as a Jew. And so for people who would like to see in him a spiritual leader and, and a symbol and, and, and someone who's very important in their lives, they should remember that, that what we do is basically what he did. Mm -hmm. So the assumption of various customs is good up until a certain point, to a point where if you have accepted the Christian faith, you are Christian. If you are the Jewish faith, you're Jewish. Can we share ethics and morals and things of this nature? Yes, we can. But I, if you ask me straight on, I would say up until a certain point, because otherwise people might get mixed up who is who and what is what. Exactly. And, hey. and each, each one should make their choice and feel proud of their choice and do as much as possible within their religious choice. But up until, as I said, a certain point. Good answer. I appreciate that. We are going to have a discussion about that later on with our uh, resident Christian theologian, Dave James. So, Winky, uh, we're looking at the one-year anniversary of the Abrahamic Accords. Uh, what's your thoughts one year in? Well, one year in is, of course, from what I see on Twitter and I read in the paper, there's a tremendous amount of travel going back and forth. There are businesses and commercial adventures and entrepreneurial uh, startups that are moving along that prove that even if you are Arab and Muslim, it doesn't mean you have to be against the state of Israel. There can be peace. There can be relationships. There can be understanding. And I will admit, of course, that the countries of, who made the peace within the Abrahamic Accords were not at war with Israel. And maybe they were smart enough not to start a war with Israel 70 years ago. Maybe things would have been better if people would have accepted Israel in 1947-48, mm -hmm. uh, which is probably a good lesson for the people who are trying to, uh, if I can use the phrase, dish this, the, these peace accords. And they prove that if people can feel comfortable and can advance scientifically, uh, commercially, hygiene-wise, there are all sorts of things that we're involved with between these countries and Israel that I think it's about time that some of the other countries stop trying to champion uh, a lost cause and in encourage the Arabs who call themselves Palestinians to make peace too. The Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, uh, Gilad Erdan, he basically said that uh, not only uh, was part of it about climate change, but to form a regional alliance to have a controlled effort against the threats in the Mideast, which right now happens to be Iran. Do you see this proceeding forward? Uh, I do uh, see it moving forward. Look, the, we cannot avoid the political and the security. And uh, it's obvious that there were certain states that had their heads above water and saw the danger 
and uh, realized that they're on the wrong side of the fence, and Israel is on the right side of the fence. Even to the extent that I think people realize that even Saudi Arabia, which is a lot more fundamentalist from a religious point of view than the states of Dubai and the Emirates and stuff like that, are also seeking ways of finding out how to do something with Israel because the threat of Iran, uh, what we call the Shiite versus the Sunni in the Muslim world, comes up with maybe the enemy of the enemy could be my friend, and that is Israel. And Israel has a good relationship with the United States. So we can't avoid that. That's also part of geopolitics of a global nature and regional stability. If everybody would be believing in God and believing in good, we wouldn't have wars. Obviously, there's something that has to, there's a minus somewhere that has to be corrected into a plus. Israel is more than welcome to find its way in the Middle East with people who want to have peace, want to have stability, and want to have economic advancement. And that's one of the keys. Does it concern you? You mentioned a relationship with the United States. Does it concern you that the Biden administration doesn't even want to use the term Abrahamic Accords? First of all, I think they have started doing it, actually, because of all the criticism for avoiding the term. I mean, that was very silly. You know, people claim that Democrats have a sort of perhaps higher standard that some of the Republicans do from the former president on down, and I don't think they do. Mm. Uh, I think they could be just as bad as anybody. And I think this is one of the cases where even when they were asked point blank at press briefings, they sort of squirmed out of the, uh, out of the uh, needs to answer that. But I think now they're doing it because it's the first anniversary and it's kind of sort of, you know, that's the name of the cause. I mean, you know, it's really difficult. Look, in previous discussions, we've always discussed the fact that Israel is not that happy with the Department of State and the White House perspective on things here, uh, we have to hope that we can politic better and they would understand better what the needs are, not only of Israel, but for the region as a whole. And this is not the first time that you've gone up against the State Department and the uh, administration of the of the president. Finishing up this week, uh, on uh, reflecting on the holiest day of the year, there's been a couple of opinion pieces that have gone around, and we all know how we feel about opinions. But one of those has to do with Jerusalem's most sacred piece of property being a place of peace. And this happens to come not from a Islamic or Muslim Jewish perspective, but from a Jewish perspective against other Jews. Do you see this as a potential problem in the future, as far as there are Jews that don't want to go up and they're criticizing the Jews that do want to go up and pray on the Temple Mount? Jimmy, it would be almost uh, a joke to tell you that three or four days ago, one of the heads of the Reform Jewish movement in the United States, and now I see a uh, the head of the uh, public affairs unit of the Agudat Yisrael, which is the ultra-Orthodox, both of them coming out against a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount, calling it provocative. Calling it provocative means you allow the Muslims to define what is a provocation. You do not exist. You must react to their being insulted, to them being provoked. And that is no way, whether it's religion, whether it's 
business or whether it's politics or military affairs to allow one side only to define what is a provocation. I would think that Jews, Christians, and Muslims praying either at different times and, of course, different places on the Temple Mount would be a great vision of peace. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, there was a Hebrew prophet by the name Isaiah who basically wrote that in chapter 2, all the nations of the world coming to the Temple Mount in prayer. So I think credit is credit due. Uh, We showed the way, and I do think that religion has a role in peacemaking, but not if you are only within your religion, but understanding of the needs and the contributions of other religions as well for things like peace and security. And so, uh, as you said, those opinion pieces, sometimes they're opinions and sometimes they're facts. Don't mix up the two. Don't mix up the two is exactly right. Winky, we see, uh, and when you were talking about the percentage of Israel observing Yom Kippur, uh, also uh, in the past you've talked about the awareness of what they're doing on the Temple Mount to bring awareness to the Jewish people. Do you see that still progressing? Uh, Jimmy, there was an article, I think, two days ago in the Haaretz magazine, uh, or newspaper, I should say, properly, and we all know, or those who do know, Haaretz is extremely left and liberal, in which he pointed out that he went up six times in the past month for the story, and he said, unbelievable, the ascent to the Temple Mount of Jews has becoming mainstream and not the property or, uh, you know, the, the sphere uh, of only some uh, small group of Jews who are shouting about something. So it's growing over the years. We've been discussed on, this, on, on, on your program and on this program with your father, late father, too. Uh, all, the, all the progress and, and consciousness raising has been going on. And I always said, be patient, give us time. Things are growing, and I think that's what it is. Amen, amen to that. Well, we're looking forward to more of an awareness as we keep moving forward. And we're also looking forward to someday being able to come back to Israel to visit the Temple Mount along with Jews and Muslims and uh, to visit not only just the Temple Mount, the holy city of Jerusalem, but all of Israel. Winky, thank you so much. Haxamayak uh, to you and your family. And uh, hopefully we'll talk next week or after Sukkot. Okay, thank you very much again for having me on, and the best to you and our listeners. Yisrael Madad, or affectionately known as Winky. You know, after all these years, it's good to find out how Winky got that nickname. But uh, it's great to have his perspective as to what goes on and what takes place in Israel. Well, the man that we go to in the European Union and who gives us a European Union perspective is John Rood. Rick, what do we have this week from John? And we're back, Jimmy, with our good friend, John Rood. He keeps our listeners informed about information or, or uh, politics inside the European Union and European affairs and that theater. John, how are you doing today? Very good. Thank you. My first question for you is I've seen in the news that the European Union itself is being threatened by a couple of its core members, Poland and Hungary. What do you know about that? Well, this is a, sort of a, continua- a continuation of the whole crisis. We have all of the various tension points. You know, we have the Eastern European countries, the Western, 
the north and the south, the rich and the poor, those that are with America more aligned, those that aren't, those that are more liberal, those that are more right. It's just a continuation, but Hungary and Poland for the moment are at the forefront. Uh, they essentially are showing opposition to some uh, EU directives and so forth. A very, very interesting point here is that Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, actually came out, not opposition, but in criticism of Hungary and Poland, saying that they're working on undermining democracy. So that's really something, because the entire EU is an extremely non-democratic organization, and there's nothing that's in the EU that's democratic except the fact that the parliament is voted by the populace, and even then they have close to no uh, independent legislative powers. So uh, Hungary and, and Poland are at the forefront right now. They're causing a bit of, of a stir, and it always brings opportunities for the EU to act in particular directives. So expect more in that end to try to reel it in. Well, if you take a look at it, I mean, we had Brexit not too long ago, and now with Angela Merkel, she's been there for quite a while now, and with Angela Merkel leaving and with maybe a, new, a whole new party coming into power in Germany, what is the viability of the European Union as we know it going forward? This is a good question concerning the balance. Uh, with the UK now, Brexit, uh, it's it's left a certain vacuum in the European Union, of course, uh, on certain issues. So it's a certainly military issue. Uh, now that's left France essentially the only EU nuclear power. So we're always looking at what's called the, the Franco-German motor of the European Union. Both countries have elections that are coming up. Chancellor Merkel has held things together in, in, a, in a sense. Uh, we do see that it's a coalition government that will be formed. I know in the United States that sounds uh, a bit odd, but being in Europe uh, close to 30 years, uh, it's, it's pretty much a normal situation at that point. Actually, being in Belgium, at one point we had the, the world record for the longest time without a government formed. And... Uh, I think finally uh, it was possibly Iraq that took took over from that. But the governments have very very wide range of of politics. At one time, the European Parliament itself was straight out five percent communist. So these are things that we don't work with such extremities in the United States. Uh, we'd see here that this Franco-German motor is going through particular changes and what's the what's the solution for the EU it's always this move and trend towards a political union very interesting well uh, how as the EU and we've been talking about Afghanistan here pretty recently how is the EU handling the Afghan situation, but in particular, the, the refugees. I know that's going to be something, an influx of immigrants into Europe. How are they handling that? Uh, normally, in terms of foreign aid, the, the European Union uh, does a notable effort. Um, at one point, the European Development Fund was the largest uh, fund, funding group for uh, foreign groups, etc., in the world. Um, but this has the mix of the refugees, which, of course, has caused some crisis 
in Europe. Uh, in the past, it's been dealt with sort of on the spot to send money. The EU has sent uh, a great amount of money to Turkey, and then Turkey at times has leveraged that, saying that, you know, we'll open up, that the refugees will be on the EU borders. But uh, specifically in Afghanistan, there's been some criticism of the EU actions or lack thereof. Uh, there was actually a letter signed by 20 for NGOs, non-governmental organizations, including Amnesty International, Oxfam, Red Cross. So uh, on a high level, uh, there is uh, a certain uh, disappointment in the European Union's help towards the 18 million people right now that are in need of assistance in Afghanistan. It's literally half of the population. For my final question, John, at the end of the previous question, you mentioned something about the fact like everything points towards a political union, um, and that's kind of an inevitable conclusion. Uh, take that and combine that with uh, the EU chief von der Leyen saying recently that Europe must build the, quote, political will for an EU army. Now, this is a subject that we have talked about before, but putting all those things together, where does that situation or where, you know, where does that stand right now? Yeah, this is a big topic. Uh, one time I took an entire session uh, only on the European Union military aspirations and et cetera. Here, Commission President von der Leyen is actually, you know, showing that it's the lack of a political will why the European Union does not have a, a army. And you have to remember that she was the defense minister of Germany, and there's no accident that she has the commission president uh, role, uh, because there's a very strong force towards uh, bringing the European Union together on this particular level. There's a lot of inherited weaknesses, as, as we said. It all uh, pertains to the iron in the clay that does not mix. And what's the solution for the European Union is that... Uh, the military uh, force, which has been actually attempted many, many times before, it's always been a failure and doesn't come together because it comes down to the fact that are the member nations of the European Union willing to give up their sovereignty on this level? And it could be that, uh, you know, after monetary union, it could be that military union, so to speak, is one of the easiest ways to advance a political agenda. What we will obviously is the coming together of an eventual 10-nation federation. Uh, we're at 27 nations right now. Eventually it will come to the point of a, a sort of implosion on which nations are going to be willing to go into a political union. And the European uh, Army has been the attempt of uh, bringing more political unity onto the scene it's taking advantage, of course, of the particular atmosphere right now with Afghanistan, et cetera, and it's unsolvable as it is right now. So what will happen? What will happen is that it will eventually be some sort of ultimatum. Are you in? Are you out? There'll be an implosion. The other countries will blow off, and then we will see what will be eventually 10 nations. It could be, you know, we're 27. We could go to 35. We could go to seven, we, but there will be an eventual 10. The political union will be the core of that 10. 
Very interesting answer. And it does look like the stage is being set for prophecy to be fulfilled, as you mentioned there. Thank you so much, John, for all you are doing to keep our listeners informed. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you very, very much. Well, John Root is our man that we go to when we need all things Europe or the European Union. And he gives us our report, our weekly report. You know, Rick, what was the thing that stood out to you the most with John Root? Well, it certainly is interesting. And of course, we are looking at current events in the light of biblical prophecy. And we say many phrases over and over again. And one of those phrases is it's setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. So we're not necessarily naming names. But when you look at the scripture and you look at what takes place in Daniel chapter 7, and you look at those nations coming together to form a revived Roman Empire, you see, though, the seeds of that or the kernels of of, of that happening in front of us. And so when you see that, you do realize that, hey, everything is coming together. And just talking and listening to John, and you talk about the inevitability of what was set in motion with the European Union, and it just continues to barrel down a path or continue on a course, what, what seems to be Bible prophecy being fulfilled. And what that's what our ministry are about is looking at those signs and looking at those events that are taking place and realizing our time or our place in history and realizing that the end in this scenario that's been set forth in Scripture is could happen at any moment. Exactly. And that's why we examine and talk to men like John. Well, we got to take a break, Rick. Uh, we'll be right back right after the news. And Dave James is coming up, so we look forward to our conversation with Dave today as we are talking about Christians being involved in the Jewish holidays. That's coming right up after the news, right here on Prophecy Today. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr., and I'm with my brother Rick we're carrying on the ministry of my father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, for over 20 years who carried on the program and produced this program week after week. It's a great privilege to be able to do that. And over the years, we have sat underneath my father as he taught, and we're looking at the biblical events. Well, we're looking at modern day events as we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, you, you know, we are carrying on this ministry for dad and uh, for ourselves and because we believe that it's one of the things that God wants us to do. What do you see as some of our early hurdles as we are heading forward into the future and as we're planning for prophecy today? Well, I do want to echo the sentiment that we are carrying on my dad's legacy. We are carrying on with the ministry. He did, for, for I guess for lack of a better word, he did leave uh, big shoes to fill. Um, we definitely miss him. And as we move forward, we want to continue to not only honor his legacy, but honor the mission that he, that he dedicated his life to. We're proud of that mission. We're proud of the, 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 the radio program that, that has been built. And uh, we definitely want to continue to carry forward with this mission and with this ministry. Uh, we appreciate the support of those. And um, obviously, uh, with, the, with the passing of our father, it's, you know, we are there, there has been some transition time, um, but again, we do covet your prayers, and we do appreciate your support. If you go to our website, prophecytoday.com, 
uh, prophecytoday.com slash partners, you can look at contributing and supporting our ministry. That support is needed as we continue every day to seek to bring you this crucial news. Great idea, Rick. And if you want to become a partner of our ministry, just go to our website and you can take a look at how you can do that. Well, Dave James is here and he's uh, he's come to talk about Christians being involved in the Jewish holidays. And we're back with our good friend, Dave James. Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, good to be with you again. Today we're dealing with a question some of our listeners may not be familiar with if they haven't been exposed much to charismatic theology and practice. That's right, Rick, and this is what our listener asked. What is the five-fold ministry, and is it biblical? And she went on to say, a friend of mine states she follows the prophets, quote-unquote, but she was not talking about the prophets in the Bible. She's stating that God has risen up or raised up prophets and apostles for today. Then she asked, is this true? And then she notes that she'd never heard of this phrase before, fivefold ministry. So the fivefold ministry is said to be based on Ephesians four eleven through 13, where Paul writes, and he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Uh, now, Rick, some in the charismatic movement interpret this to mean that God is raising up a new generation of apostles and prophets to establish God's kingdom on the earth, and a major problem with that is, of course, Christ is going to establish his kingdom, not the church, which is his bride. The queen of the kingdom never establishes the kingdom. It's the, it's the king. And also back in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul wrote this, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And the foundation of the church has been laid, which I would argue was complete by the end of the book of Acts. And, and also, we need to understand that apostles and prophets possess revelatory sign gifts, uh, but God's revelation was completed in the first century. And then finally, the nature of the supposed miracles done today don't remotely compare to those done by true apostles and prophets uh, in the Word of God. So I would conclude that those who hold to the fivefold ministry are very wrong in their theology on multiple counts. The main issue there is to compare everything you hear to Scripture. Isn't that correct? Absolutely right. That's what we always have to go back to. Well, switching gears, this week marked the Jewish observance of Yom Kippur, and in connection with that, the Israel 365 News website ran an article concerning Christians fasting on this Jewish feast day. So we just wanted to deal with the growing practice of Christians observing the Jewish feast days in general. And that's right, Rick. Uh, the title of that article, which your brother Jimmy alerted us to, was 15 Reasons Why Christians Fast on Yom Kippur. And the article opened with this, the solemn holiday of Yom Kippur, that's the Day of, of Atonement, which falls between Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, is gaining recognition outside the Jewish community. In 2016, for example, Yom Kippur was recognized as an official holiday by the United Nations, and U.N. employees no longer have to use vacation time, and no official U.N. meetings take place on that feast day. And the article went on to say this, Breaking Christian News reporter Julia Stahl quoted the European Coalition for Israel founding director Thomas Sandel, quote, 
spiritually, I believe it is prophetically significant that the nations are gradually adapting to God's biblical calendar, his appointed times. And then the 15 specific reasons uh, were given as to why Christians observe uh, Yom Kippur, uh, the fast of Yom Kippur, and it included things like showing solidarity with Israel and identifying with the Jewish people, uh, some said it brings a sort of new spiritual depth and deeper level of worship or a deeper level of repentance. Uh, one person said it's a bit like rebooting our computer, feeling renewed, knowing that God is in charge of every minute event on earth and in the universe. And someone also cited the deeper knowledge of God, while another said that it helped them with preparation for judgment. And on the surface and in and of themselves, these kinds of things are good if that is really uh, the purpose of the feast and observed in in the right way, but there's there's more going on. Well, I know my dad loved teaching about the Jewish feast and did so frequently. But for any listeners who may, may not be as familiar with them, could you give a brief overview of what they are and why they're important? Sure. Uh, what are often referred to as the Jewish feasts are more correctly or more precisely known as the feasts of the Lord, and they're part of the law that the Lord gave to Israel through Moses. And they're first mentioned in Leviticus 23, where we read in verse 2, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. And then the Lord prescribes a total of seven annual feasts, and three are close to each other in the first month of the Jewish religious calendar, which is in our March-April time frame, and these are Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits. And then 50 days after First Fruits is the Feast of Weeks, or Feast of Harvest, which is also known as Pentecost. And then the last three take place in the seventh month, which is in our September-October time frame, and these are the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, these feasts of the Lord have both historical and prophetic significance because they look both to what the Lord has done in the past and then what He will do in the future. And then as to their prophetic significance, Rick, all the feasts point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And and he has fulfilled the first four as he was crucified on Passover, buried on unleavened bread, resurrected on uh, first fruits, and then he started his church on Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, the three fall feasts will be fulfilled with Christ's second coming, so that will include his return to the earth, the redemption of Israel, and the millennial kingdom, when he will once again tabernacle with men here on this earth for a thousand years. Well, and this is a great subject, and I'm really just trying to get a proper perspective on the Jewish feast. And there's a certain segment within the evangelical world that is trying to get back to what they believe are the Jewish roots of Christianity and return to patterns of worship and fellowship that they would say were part of the early church in the first century. Do you think this is good? Is it a helpful goal? And most importantly, I guess, is it biblical? Well, we need to think through this really carefully and biblically. It is true that the Old Testament laid the foundation for the New Testament as God's program unfolded in history. So there's a progress of revelation. And it's also true that the law, the prophets and the writings uh, that make up the Old Testament, provided Israel with the knowledge of God and guidance for how the nation uh, of Israel should relate to God, to one another, and to the rest of the world. And then, finally, it's true that Jesus was ethnic. Jewish, 
uh, as were the apostles who laid the foundation for the Church. And so they undoubtedly relied on their knowledge of God's revealed Word and their cultural Judaism uh, going forward uh, into the first century as the foundation of the Church was laid, as we talked about. However, that being said, the question is, is it true that the first century Church uh, was largely Jewish in theology and practice? So thinking through that, First, we know that all of the apostles sought to reach the Jews first with the gospel, and we read that, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first uh, and then to the Greek. And then whenever Paul went into a new city, he always went to the synagogues first. And so undoubtedly, most of the founding members and first disciples and leaders in the early churches, they were all Jewish. And in fact, in Acts 19, the church in Ephesus began with 12 disciples of John the Baptist who became believers in Christ as they heard the gospel from Paul. So given all this, if we only had the New Testament letters, how much would we know about the law of Moses and about the feasts and, and living as the Jews did? Well, and, and how much would we know about Jewish worship and religious practices in general? And the fact is, we would know very, very little, uh, meaning that the Gentile Christians would have known very little. And this tells us that the ethnically Jewish Christians, the leaders, the founding members of the churches, understood that God was doing something completely new with the church and his program, and that the first century church really wasn't functioning as an extension of Judaism. This is such an important discussion, David. Just to summarize it all up, what are your thoughts on Christians observing the Jewish feast and some of the reasons given in this news article that we talked about as to why Christians are doing this apparently in growing numbers? Well, as I was preparing for our discussion, Rick, I sent that article to a Jewish friend who is a believer in Christ and a respected Bible teacher in his own right, and I interacted with him some about this, and let me quote part of what he wrote to me. He said, while I don't oppose it in theory, as Romans 14 allows it, it can be a positive thing if done by mature, sober believers who are Scripture-centered and Messiah-centered, but in actual practice, about two-thirds of the cases have Gentile believers who start down that road, and when they do, they most often lose sight of Messiah. And what he meant by Romans 14, allowing it, is part of Christian liberty, because in verse 5, Paul wrote, "...one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind." So that would apply to the day of worship, whether it be the Sabbath day or the first day of the week, or observance of feasts. And I know, for example, Prophecy Today and other ministries sometimes conduct Passover setters as a way of remembering and educating believers concerning the significance of what Christ did as he participated in and he fulfilled the Passover. But that is far different than one person in the article who said their motivation to fast on Yom Kippur is because it's in the Bible. As Bible-believing Christians, we try to follow biblical precepts in our life actions. No, that's mistaken. The Jewish feasts, even though they're in the Bible, they're, they were for Israel alone and were definitely not required by God for the Church. There's no requirement for them in any of the letters to churches or individuals uh, in the New Testament. And my friend's other point about losing sight of the Messiah was also something that struck me about that article uh, in Israel 365, because even though 
all of the feasts of the Lord point to the Messiah, uh, of those 15 reasons given for why different Christians observe them, the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned a single time in the entire article. So my concern is that this is part of a trend within some parts of evangelicalism that involves a sort of Judaizing of Christianity, and that's something that Paul dealt with repeatedly in his letters, and in the process, the the gospel is often lost. Well, this is such great information and thoughtful, David. We appreciate you doing the research, and we appreciate you keeping our listeners informed of these important subjects. Thank you so much. Uh, very glad to do it, Rick. Always a pleasure to, to join you and, uh, and Jimmy Jr. each week. Well, we look forward to hearing again next week as we discuss new topics, and we will see you then. All right. Thank you very much. Dave James. I appreciate Dave's look because he takes God's Word, and he helps us to understand what is our role. What role do we play in the Jewish holidays, and what role do they play in our lives not only today as we're living here, but into the future, as it does say that these holidays or these holy days will be practiced in the future. But we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'll wrap everything up as we take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Thank you for joining us on the program today, and thanks, Rick, for doing interviews and talking to our broadcast partners. I want to thank you also for taking the time to tune into our program, whether it took time out of your day or you make a special time by listening to a podcast or going to our website, prophecytoday.com, and clicking on PTRN. We do have all of the interviews there 
The program is there in its entirety, and it's there for you so that you, the true student of Bible prophecy, can go there and you can learn and listen to men as we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Again, that website is prophecytoday.com. And if you happen to miss any part of our program, you can go there and you'll find the interviews and the program that you can listen to again. Now I'd like to take a look at the book where we take the topics that our broadcasters talked about. We draw the connection between what they talked about, the events that are taking place in our world today, and how it fits into Bible prophecy. Ken Timmerman talked about the Abrahamic Accords. Actually, Ken, Dave Dolan, and Winky Madad all talked about the Abrahamic Accords and the one-year anniversary. Each one of these men discussed the various states at which they felt the Accords were in at this point in time. Ken Timmerman looked at it and addressed it from a point of view that the United States, who were the ones that came up with it, are not really even excited about it or involved. David Dolan expressed his opinion from a 35-year vantage point of being in the Middle East as a journalist. And then, of course, Yisrael Madad, Winky, addressed it from a point of view as an Israeli and seeing how the countries that are involved are starting to work together and have some sort of normalization with the country of Israel. Besides climate change, the one thing that all of the countries are focusing on is Iran and Iran's ability to get a nuclear weapon. When you go to Psalm 83, you see the nations that are involved in a council. As a matter of fact, these nations come out of a council where they have decided to wipe Israel off the face of the map. That is Psalm 83, verses 1 to 8. These nations today are involved in the Abrahamic Accord, and at one point in the future, they will come out of that council and turn their back on Iran and attack Israel. One more nation that Ken talked about would be China. China is one of the kings out of the east, referred to in Revelation chapter 16, verse 6, where the kings out of the east follow the dried up Euphrates River, and they are on their way to attack Israel in the Middle East. Dave Dolan and Winky Madad both talked about their time in Israel. Dave, from a Gentile perspective, and observing the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, and then, of course, Winky Madad, from a Jewish perspective, a religious Jew, as he observed the 25-hour fast during the time of Yom Kippur. It's interesting to see how the country of Israel is becoming much more aware of the Jewish High Holy Days. There are more people today observing the High Holy Days, and there are more people today aware of the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, it's becoming commonplace now for Jews to be going to the Temple Mount to pray, and that they are aware that God has a plan and a program for the Jewish people in the future. As the Jewish people read the Old Testament, they understand that God has promised that there would be a temple in the city of Jerusalem and that the Jewish people would have the opportunity again to worship in the city of Jerusalem in a temple. But according to scripture, there will be two more temples. The first one will be standing during the tribulation period, and then the second one will be standing during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Millennial Kingdom in the future. John Rood talked about the European Union and how, according to Daniel chapter 7, the nations are coming together and how they could get down to 10 nations that will be ruling the European Union 
or it's the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. Dave James talked about the Jewish feast and who they are for. If you remember, they were given at the time to the Jewish people. Therefore, they're Jewish holidays. They will be for the Jews, not only in the past, and in the past they pointed to Jesus Christ, but in the future, the Jewish people will practice and participate in the Jewish feast in the future during the Millennial Kingdom. And in the Millennial Kingdom, we'll look back to how Jesus Christ fulfilled not only the four spring feasts at his first coming, the three fall feasts point us toward the glory of his second coming. The first is the source of our hope in Christ, his finished work of atonement for sins, and the second is the promise of what is to come, eternity with Christ. Understanding the significance of these God-appointed Jewish festivals helps us to better see and understand the complete picture and plan of redemption found in Scripture. We want to invite you, if you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, to do that now. Remember, Bible prophecy is there to help us for two reasons. One is to edify the body of Christ, to educate them. The second is for evangelization and to tell people that God has a program, a redemptive program, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. Bible prophecy also helps us to live a pure, productive, holy life in an unholy world until the rapture of the church or until God takes us home. Remember, accepting Jesus Christ is easy as ABC. Admit that you're a sinner. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. A person needs to understand that their sin is what separates them from a holy God. They need to admit that they have sinned. B. Believe the Lord Jesus. They need to believe who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God sent down to the world to take the penalty of our sins. Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, confess the Lord Jesus. You need to confess that Jesus is Lord. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The salvation prayer is easy. Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died on the cross to save me from my sins. I now ask you to be the Lord of my life, and I promise to commit my life to you. If you prayed that prayer today, please let us know. Contact us at prophecytoday.com. And with the things that we have seen on the program today, that rapture might not be very far away. So let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.